Would you please pray with me? God of grace and mercy, God who made us all, each one of us, one of your beloved children, whole and lovely, wonderful to behold, be with us on this morning and in all of these days as we seek to know you better, to know your love and your law, to follow you wherever you lead us, help our words and our hearts to be yours today. Amen. So we're in the middle of a sermon series called Inside Out. Each Sunday, we've been preaching on one of the big emotions that runs our hearts and runs our lives, one of those feelings that we feel all the time, based on the movie, which is about a girl named Riley and her five emotions, sadness, anger, fear, disgust, and joy, and how they affect her life. And to think about those feelings, we've also been reading the Psalms that Violet so beautifully read for us today, because the Psalms are where human emotions are most celebrated in the Bible. They are songs written by humans about the fullness of our experience, the full emotional palette that we paint with. And so with the Psalms and the movie together, we seek to understand the role that these emotions play in our lives and our faith lives, and how they might drive us towards love, towards joy towards wholeness and inclusion and God rather than away from those things. But we have yet to watch a clip of the movie, (laughs) y'all. So today, let us begin with the opening sequence from Inside Out. If you haven't seen it, there's no spoilers, no worries, Uh, just to get a, a flavor of how these emotions are working in our heads. And back to joy. So this is how feelings often work in our lives. We have these moments of stimuli, experiences that are driving us from one thing to another, to another, to another, um, coloring our whole experience of the world as they color the memories that are entering Riley's brain. And part of the lesson you will learn if you watch the whole movie, which I would commend to you, we might be trying to do like a, like a movie watch in early August, so keep your eyes out. If anyone wants to host that, y'all let me know. Um, part of the lesson of the movie, right, is Joy is initially um, upset when sadness shows up, right? She's like irritated. Why do I have to share this space? I'm Joy. I rock. Why don't we want to be Joy all the time? Um, but what we learn is that every emotion um, is needed. Every emotion is useful. There's no such thing as an emotion that we should reject or not have. And that's a lesson that's really different than the lessons that we get from the world, right? The world that can tell us, oh, uh, never be angry. That's too scary, right? Or like, you don't deserve to be angry about your circumstances. Or never be sad. That means you're not strong. Sadness is weakness. Many of the feelings and emotions we are told um, are bad, are negative. We should cut them out. But what the movie teaches and what the scriptures teach us, what the Psalms teach us, is that there is no such thing as an emotion that has no place in our hearts and minds. It's all about how each emotion has its place in our hearts and in our minds. God has given us this gorgeous palette of different feelings and emotions with which to paint the pictures of our lives. We don't want to reject any color, but we also want to be sensitive to how we use them and to how we are driven by them. Can we embrace anger 
but not let anger run us so much that we are yelling at every car in the street that does something we don't agree with, right? Can we embrace our sadness, but not live so fully in sadness that it keeps us from being able to see any of the happy things in our lives or in the world? This is how we seek to embrace the emotions that God has given us. And today, we're talking about the little, the little green girl, uh, voiced by the wonderful Mindy Kaling, disgust. <clears throat> disgust. Uh, and I, I had a hard time with disgust at first. I feel like disgust is probably the emotion of these five that I think about the least, experience the least. Um, I'm not super sensitive to disgust. Like, I don't like cockroaches, but I also don't kind of have that feeling every day in my life, right? Um, and so I was, I was sort of looking in my life for examples of disgust because I trust that with any emotion, there are really purposeful, wonderful things that, are, that it's doing in our lives and there are ways that it can go wrong, right? I trust that that's true because that's my experience of God. But how? How? And I watched this little clip and I saw Riley throw away the broccoli, right? Disgust protecting her from potential poisons. <laughs> and I thought of my partner, my husband, Matt, the pickiest eater I've ever met in my whole wide life. <laughs> This is a man, he doesn't just not eat broccoli, he doesn't eat things that are green. <laughs> he doesn't eat soup, he doesn't eat things that live in the water. <laughs> he doesn't eat most things that have ever existed. So I thought, oh, okay, maybe there's something to learn here, right? <laughs> Matt seems to experience disgust a lot. Uh, from watching him, what can I learn about the role that this emotion that God has given us plays in our lives? And I thought about two of my favorite stories about little, little, little Matt. Riley-sized Matt. Um, and the first is about that place that most of us think of when we think of disgust, which is a physical response, a physical response to stimuli, a physical response to our world. Uh, Matt, in his pickiness, in his sensitivity, this is a lifelong trait of his, uh, when he was about eight months old, his mom was trying to get him to eat solid foods, right? This is a part of growing up. This is part of learning to be a person. His mom wanted him to eat solids, and he was resistant. <laughs> he was like, ah, milk's cool. I'm good. I don't need any of the solid food. And so she was trying everything that she could try, everything in the closet, everything in the cupboard, um, everything she could try to get this kid to eat solid food um, so that he could live, right? <laughs> She's doing this for him. Um, and one of her favorite foods is chicken livers. <laughs> yeah, right? You're already, you're with me. I'm with you, you're with me. Disgust is alive in all of us. Yes, I hear you. Um, and so she thinks, well, like, why not give it a shot? Right, why not try? Um, and so one evening, she purees some chicken livers. Doesn't that sound appetizing to you and to eight-month-old Matt? Um, and she takes a little spoon and puts it in his mouth. And he gives all of the signs of disgust, right? He has the wrinkled nose. He has the face coming back. And as she says it now, um, gives her the angriest look I've ever seen on a baby. And he refused to eat for three days. Three days. He is a stubborn man, as well as an easily disgusted one. Would not eat. He was just like, oh, the person I love most in the world tried to poison me. I'm done. <laughs> no more eating. Never again. Um, his taste had led him to resist, right, to resist in the world until his dad broke down, got him some McDonald's french fries, 
and then the eating began again. Uh, so that's Matt, right? High sensitivity to disgust, high reaction to when he feels disgust. He is protective of his person. He does not want to be poisoned. So, like, physically I could get that. Um, but I was looking for emotionally, what, what purpose could that possibly serve? Why would God have given us this gift, this sensitivity? What could it teach us about the world? What could it teach us about each other? And I thought of another story that I love about little tiny Matt, um, which is when he went to film a children's TV show in Philadelphia where he grew up called Captain Noah. I don't know where any of you are from, um, but most towns have this, right? The like public access kids show that's filmed in your town. Many Chicagoans, it was probably Bozo the Clown, right? Something like that. Um, a kids show that is like the coolest thing that actually happens where you live. And he loved it. He watched Captain Noah every day. He loved this show, thought it was so great. And so as this like special surprise, his parents got him on Captain Noah. He was going to be one of the kids at the table. He was going to be one of the kids learning the alphabet, one of the kids singing the songs, learning his colors. And he's so excited. And they bring him, and he spends all morning at the table learning at the feet of Captain Noah, singing songs and playing games. And he is like all about it. And then they have a break for lunch. Um, and Captain Noah, right, is not just an actor inhabiting a character. He's also a boss on set. And during the break, Captain Noah starts screaming at some of the crew members. Some of the camera operators and the other folks, he's just screaming at them that they're doing their job incorrectly. They haven't gotten him, you know, whatever 1980s version of a latte he wanted. I don't know, but he's just yelling and screaming. Um, and at the end of the break... Matt's parents come up to him and are like, okay, like we're filming again, you can sit at the table. And he goes, no. And they're like, sweetie, it's, it's fine, it's gonna be just like the morning, you had so much fun, nothing's different. No. So they decide they're gonna bring in the big guns, right? Like, let's ask Captain Noah to ask him back to filming. That's his hero, like this is totally gonna work. Captain Noah comes up, hey Matt, it's time to film again. Don't you wanna sit at the table? I do not like you, Captain Noah. You are mean, and I will not do it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. It would not budge, would not give up. Captain Noah had violated his moral code, and it was over. <laughs> and his parents had to take him home, and the signed picture of Captain Noah he had been given, he drew a big X on it with a marker, <laughs> and he was done. So I see in that, his disgust at that behavior, right? made him sensitive to an issue of justice. His disgust at the behavior of Captain Noah made him not want to be like that, made him not want to do that. It's not just broccoli he's rejecting. It's not just chicken livers it's, he's rejecting. It's cruelty that he's rejecting. It's meanness that he's rejecting. And so something about that sensitivity serves in our lives to make us better people, to alert us to ways we don't want to be to alert us to effects we don't want to have in this world that we have to share together. There's a purpose, right? There's a reason for that disgust feeling that we sometimes feel at something that someone is doing or saying, um, the forms of cruelty we see too often in the world. And that's useful, that's helpful. It's a good alarm bell in our heads for ways we do and don't want to be. But here's the thing, we've gotten a little bit out of hand. We've gotten a little bit out of hand with how much we allow disgust at actions 
at behaviors to legitimize us feeling disgusted at people, at humans, at children of God who are always much, much more than one behavior or one thing that we find distasteful. When I hear the political rhetoric going around today, I hear a lot of disgust and the things that it leads to. Contempt, loathing, shame. Shaming of others and shaming of ourselves. That has become the language of political discourse, right? Not just I disagree with that person. Not just what they believe is dangerous for our country and I wanna convince you to vote against it. But they are contemptuous. They are disgusting. They are less than human and need to be away from our community. It's a language of contamination. As if there are people who shouldn't be a part of us, people who shouldn't be a part of our nation, people who can't be trusted, people who can't be loved. It's not the kind of disgust that's an alarm bell at behavior. It's the kind of disgust that destroys people because it legitimizes us in thinking that people aren't fully human, fully loved or fully of God. The gift is the alarm, but the danger is letting the alarm run your life and not see the God, the God in everyone, no matter how distasteful to you or how opposite on the political spectrum they may be. I would never tell you a story about, some, about someone unless I had asked them permission, right? So I asked Matt, or otherwise, I mean, Matt and any family members I have would just be totally screwed. And so I asked Matt, right, can I tell these two stories about you, the chicken liver story and the Captain Noah story? And he said, well, I guess you can, but like you shouldn't tell the Captain Noah story. That's not good for a sermon, right? And I was like, why not? It's so funny. And he said, well, because Captain Noah was probably having a crappy day, <laughs> right? The, the disgust that was an alarm bell to him as a child, as a mature person, he can see, I don't want that behavior, but that guy is probably fine, right? I shouldn't have X'd out his face. He probably had other positive attributes. <laughs> now that I'm not four, <laughs> I have the capacity to see something bigger, to see something broader, to see something wider in people who even do the things that bother me and hurt me and tear me apart the most. They are always something more than just those things. Always something more than just that stuff. And this is the journey, the difficult journey, <laughs> that I see our psalmist going on today. We've been reading from the psalms, and some of you may know, um, the psalms are the, song, the songbook of the Bible, right? It's, it's people over time writing these epic um, songs or short tunes that they would sing in worship or sing while picking apples or sing while hanging out with their friends about who God was in their lives and what they were struggling with. It's a deeply emotional book. It's a deeply human book. And this particular psalm, Psalm 119, is the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, and it's also the longest chapter in the Bible. You're so lucky that I did not have him read the whole thing, her read the whole thing. <laughs> it is long. It is uh, 168 verses, but it's long because it's a game, because it's playful. This is something a lot of us miss um, if you're a Bible reader when you read the, the Hebrew Bible. If you don't speak Hebrew, there's a lot of wordplay and like a lot of jokes 
all throughout it that we miss if we only speak English. And in this case, what's happening is that this is a song about how lovely and amazing God is and how much God has to offer us that's also an acrostic. There's 22 paragraphs, each one in order, a letter of the alphabet. And every line of the paragraph starts with that letter of the alphabet. So there's an A paragraph, right, um, where everything that the person can think of that starts with A testifies to how great God is. And a B paragraph, where everything the poet can think of that starts with B testifies to how great God is. And they are in it, right? They are writing at length. This is the Bohemian Rhapsody of Paeons to God. <laughs> this is the Grateful Dead jamming concert of being into God. It is epic and it is long, but it is long because they are full of that joy and full of that love and full of the conviction that there is something to be singing about here, that there is something to be happy about here. And all of the first verses are focused on that good stuff, that stuff we want to go towards, that stuff we want to be, that stuff we want to model. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Blessed are those who keep God's statues and seek God with all their heart. I will not be put to shame when I consider all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. That's verse 1. Verse Zion, remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. This is where my husband, whose mother is a Hebrew teacher, is going to make fun of how I pronounce any of these. Um, verse Mem, right? Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me. It's all joyful. It's all seeking a good. Until the paragraph we read today. The paragraph we read today, which is the third to the last, it's verse resh, where everything starts with, right, sort of equivalent of R. And here it starts to break down a little bit. All of that joy, all of that conviction of the goodness of God, all of that seeking after promises of justice and love and being convinced that God loves us, every one of us, me and you, and there's something to be found here. Look on my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. And then we start to get away a little bit from, from me and from you and from God and from joy. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Now he's starting to focus on consequence, right? Um, but he's not saying that there's no salvation for the wicked, just that it's like far. It's a longer journey. And he's not saying it's just them. He's saying it's all of us, right? All of us could experience wickedness. Your compassion, Lord, is great. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me. Now he starts to focus on the difficult parts of his life, the parts that have been a challenge, the times when people have looked at him maybe and said, you're disgusting. The parts of his life where people have looked at him and said, you're not of God. I don't love you. I don't believe in you. You are something I detest. He thinks of those who have persecuted him, those who have hurt him, those who have torn him apart. But I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with disgust, for they do not obey your word. And this is where he breaks. He goes from his song of love to a song of disgust, not disgust with faithlessness, but disgust with people. I think because he's remembering all of the times that that has been used against him, right? All of the times that that has been used as a weapon and a sword against his heart. 
And for a line in the midst of a song of joy and love and focusing on what can be, he instead focuses on other people and why they're wrong, <laughs> and other people and why they're worthless. Instead of building up what he might be with God, he builds up how others can't be with God, which I think is never the direction that God is leading us, but is often a trap that we fall into. Because life hurts, because we've been hurt, because we feel like we might not be enough to reach the great things and the hope and the love of the world. And so we turn that sense of self-shame and self-hurt and all the pain we're bearing around with us outward and turn it into disgust for other people. There's an us and there's a them, there's a me and there's a you, and some of us are with God and some of us aren't because you have just caused me too much pain and so you're, you're out of the club. You're out of God club, get out of here. You're what's not right about the world. We often see each other that way. It's, I've felt that way. It's natural. It's understandable. But God never sees a single one of us that way. God never sees a single one of us that way. Think about the person for whom you hold the most contempt. I would guess it's a public figure, probably not a private one, although it could be either. Um, that person, I am not saying what they have done is right. I am not saying what they have done is okay. I am not saying what they say is okay. But the truth, the truth we are called to believe, the truth we are called to live, is that they are a child of God. There is something beautiful about them. There is some spark of love and joy in them. And there's no living into God. There's no living into truth unless we hold just as fast to their love and goodness and humanity as we do to the people who are a part of our group, a part of our in, the ones who are easy for us to love. It's something we have to practice. It's not something that comes easy, finding compassion for those in whom we still see things that need to change and those with whom we still disagree and may resist and fight. But it's what we are called to not just because that builds communities, but because when we practice that compassion towards others, we'll often find ourselves practicing compassion towards the person who, for most of us, is hardest to love, ourself. This is the other thing I found when I was researching disgust, looking up what disgust is, how it works. The first thing that came up was not any of the interesting science, right, about where disgust comes from or what purpose it might serve. The first thing that came up was a message board um, hosted by somebody or other that's just called Disgusted With Myself, where people go anonymously late at night when they have had a terrible day and they, uh, without names, say why they are disgusted with themselves. I'm disgusted with myself because I mess up at work today. I'm disgusted with myself because I eat too much. I'm disgusted with myself because I uh, was cruel to a friend. I'm disgusted with myself because I'm worthless. I'm disgusted with myself because nobody loves me. I read and I read and I read and the pages, they never ended. They never ended of people sharing with an anonymous community of internet denizens the disgust and the shame they felt for their own person for their own human body and their own human weakness. We have to learn this compassion and this grace for people in the midst of things that they do wrong or do differently because we have to learn it for ourselves. 
So many of us are walking around out there hating huge chunks of us that God has made to give us joy. Feeling shame about parts of ourselves that are just a part of being human. (laughs) Making mistakes, being in the world, having a body, these are things that are sources of joy and not shame, and yet so many of us are walking around wishing we could disappear. That's not what God wants for us. That's not what we want for ourselves. That's not the kind of love we have been promised. The things that are most likely to arouse disgust in us are things that remind us that we are animals and things that remind us that we are going to die. We don't like feeling weak. We don't like feeling yucky. We don't like feeling not in charge. And yet, that is most of what we experience as humans. It's most of what we experience as humans, and it's a part of ourselves not to feel shame about, but to embrace and say, yeah, I'm an animal, I'm a weirdo, I'm kind of gross, I've made mistakes, and God adores me, so why wouldn't I adore myself? Why wouldn't I adore you? Why wouldn't we adore and love each other in the midst of all that weirdness that is being a human being? That... That is what love is. I wondered initially why love isn't a part of these five emotions in the movie. Um, I don't know about for you, but for me, love is the most important emotion I've ever felt, right? It's the feeling that I like the most. It's the feeling that transforms me the most. And so I looked it up. Why did the scientists not list love as one of these core, you know, five, core 17, core whatever, core emotions? And it's because these emotions that run our brain, right, that run our memories, they are all fleeting. They are all momentary. They are responses to external stimuli. See a broccoli, feel disgust. See a monster, feel fear, right? Uh, See a good movie, feel joy. But love isn't like that. Love isn't about stimuli and love isn't momentary. Love doesn't happen just for a second. The scientist said in the poetry that can sometimes only come from someone who's looked at something clinically, emotions are momentary responses to stimuli, but love is an enduring attachment, an enduring attachment to the idea that whatever we love is whole and wonderful and worthy as it is, and what we want for the thing or the person that we love is the best for them. An enduring attachment that they are deserving of joy, that they are deserving of hope, that they are a gift to the world. An an enduring attachment, not a momentary response, is what God feels for us. And so how much more can an enduring attachment be what we feel for each other? Emotions are important. We want to embrace them all, the good that they have, and be resistant to the bad that they can cause. But in the end, there is no emotion more powerful than the enduring attachment that is love. And the ways that love can change our lives and change how we enter the world and how we treat each other. I know this. I know this for sure because... um, at, you know, at the expense of maybe grossing some of you out, all of the most disgusting things that have ever happened to me in my life have happened in the last year since I had a kid. 
right? All of, all of them. She's super gross, and everything that we do together is super gross. She has pooped all over me. There's pee all over my furniture, right? Like, she spits up on everything. This is a part of her nature as a human being. And I could not care less. I could not care less. All of that stuff that I was scared about before she was born, that like, dirty house, dirty self, grossed out, how will I even do it? I don't care, because I love her. <laughs> because I love her. I'm attached to her well-being. I am attached to the idea that she is extraordinary and wonderful, and none of her humanness embarrasses or shames me because of how totally and completely I love her being. That's how God feels about every single one of us. Doesn't care. Doesn't care about the shameful stuff. Doesn't care about the gross stuff. Doesn't care about the disgusting stuff because of how totally and completely God loves our being. What if we felt that way about ourselves? What if we felt that way about each other? What if none of the muck and the mess mattered, not because we don't see it or we ignore it, but because it is nothing, nothing, in comparison to the kind of love that God has promised to each and every one of us and that God is showing each and every one of us every day. Disgust is real, anger is real, fear is real, and they are useful. They are not to be rejected, right? They're a part of us, but none of them, none of them are more powerful than the enduring hope and presence of love that God has gifted to us, that God invites us to enter into, that God invites us to overflow with. And when we are filled with love, the disgust and the anger and the fear will still be there, but they will not run us. Because when love runs us, we are full of hope. When love runs us, we are full of joy. When love runs us, we know salvation. And nothing else matters in comparison to that. We are mucky humans. Mucky, messy, gross humans. Adored beyond all measure. And I am so so grateful for that. In Jesus' name we give thanks. Amen.